Deputy Secretary General, Ambassador Zahalji, <coughs> members of Concern Worldwide, uh, distinguished guests, dear friends. Agrini Kor, Erin Gaydal, she has his privilege to ensure Agus Portak Lako, is in Kogal Tavak Daksha, Agus Mwita Play Kursi, Ak Kursi, Shiakon, Kursi, Boytanishandan, Agus Arain Vedelia, and Maidatali Yano. I'm very deeply honoured to join you all here today uh, and to address such a distinguished group of humanitarians, policy makers and activists, many of whom have dedicated their labours and their lives to the cause of peace, the cause of justice and solidarity. And I do want to thank Dominic McSorley, the Chief Executive Officer of Concern Worldwide, for that generous introduction and for his invitation to open this conference today. And as I listened to him introduce me, I, I felt I should say something else as well. All of you who have volunteered and all of you who have been in the field know what it is to have to pick up again uh, where you thought you had made progress, but a setback has occurred. And as I listened to him list the countries that I visited in, in those years, I was, if you like, in some of the most post-dictatorship moments of great hope in Central and Latin America, for example, only in recent weeks and recent months to see it slip back to even some conditions that were worse than those when I first visited uh, in, in the 1980s. And that should be regarded as a provocation to further and deeping deeper thinking as to the precise nature of the complexity of the changes that have to take place if you are to sustain a, a transition from one set of circumstances to another. The danger is, of course, is to say, as I've so often heard it said in such, from good people who don't realize what an insulting phrase it is, that there is any part of the world that is essentially conflict-prone, as if it was part of the people of a particular place or region in our planet. It is not, and all of it is understandable, and that is where the real work uh, is involved. And it is so characteristic of concern to celebrate its 50th year, 50 years since its foundation, by drawing inspiration not just from the past, as you've just heard, but by redoubling your efforts to confront existing and emerging humanitarian crises and expressing concern's determination to achieve the great task that the nations of the world have set themselves and their citizens through the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. And I think uh, I will just simply say uh, that it is so appropriate too that you end this evening by a visit to an exhibition by Brian Maguire, one of the finest and most engaged of, of Ireland's artists. His exhibition entitled Humanity, Sight Unseen. Because sometimes these images don't need words to convey uh, the importance, the urgency, and the responsibility of us all as a and the universal community. The experience of the three years since the agreement of the Sustainable Development Goals in New York 
and you know 2015, two great, great decisions, sustainable development, and then the in New York and the response to climate change in Paris. But what has happened in the last three years is just a painful reminder that we live in a world that yields only slowly and painfully to change, and one that is slow to address its fundamental assumptions that is the cause of what we constantly return to, one that is marked by the persistence of violence, injustice, and humanity, by private avarice and public squalor, and one that is even now in many parts of the world, and in Europe itself, wrecked by the return of hateful political ideologies we had long thought vanished, or banished to the margins of political life. And thus this conference demonstrates that a will, indeed an anxiety, exists, that such violence, such injustice, such humanity, be met with an answerable determination, not only to seek to understand the sources of such conflicts, but to take action and seek to resolve conflicts, to promote sustainable development and the public realm, to confront the underlying causes of human suffering, and above all, to give credence to our oft-stated mission statement, to stand in solidarity with some of the poorest people on our planet. A conference such as this can be a valuable examination of conscience, I suggest, internationally, as to the authenticity of commitment. It can be a test as to whether our global institutions and those who people them are not part of what has been referred to in a very well-known document by Pope Francis as a culture of indifference. The culture of indifference will kill the most, will cause the most deaths, will allow the greatest suffering to continue. And a determination to be of the opposite instinct and mind is reflected, to be morally, practically engaged. That has been in evidence and concern since its very earliest days, when a group of committed and compassionate citizens met at the home of John K. Lachlan Kennedy to hear the testimony of John's brother, Father Raymond Kennedy, who as a Holy Ghost father had borne witness to suffering and starvation wrought by the blockade of Biafra. For many of us, the events of which he spoke ruptured some of the hopes that had been placed in independent Africa as the site of new emancipatory politics, one freed from the depredations and assumptions of the old imperial powers, who had not only failed the world in the preceding century in terms of reflecting even an interest in any global balance of ecology, culture, sufficiency, welfare, and fulfillment. They had had, if you like, I think, they had been insatiable in pressing for advantage in the most narrow sense. And I think, too, uh, they left legacies. Legacies were left that enabled a native predatory set of elites to emerge and Indeed, they were fostered and brought into existence. As part of that legacy, which is slow to be removed, and that built on imperialist extraction, dominance, cultural suppression, I feel, and I think 
what we really now think of and the circumstances we face is that it is always more complex than we thought. And I think today we cannot truthfully say that the needs of sufficiency are being met or indeed that a legacy of resource extraction is over. In Ireland, the events in Biafra awakened a spirit of generosity and compassion not unrelated to the memory which had been handed down of the Great Famine in Ireland. It was a spirit displayed in the huge response that went out for the appeal for funds that was launched in June 1968 by Concern, assisted by other groups who joined in. For that year, 1968, quite revolutionary in itself, and of course all of this was assisted by the new forms of technological communication that had come into being. And it, if you like, saw something that all of us who were alive then uh, saw as the possible emergence of a new humanitarian conscience in what was being referred to as the Global North in response to the television images of famine and suffering in Africa and through the formation of organisations such as Concern. But also, it was as if a conscience was emerging that could be fused with a moment of emancipation and liberation across the world, and all amidst the turmoil and tragedy of the Cold War. And those of us who have given credit to those who are part of that and seeking to give leadership to something other than the Cold War, concentrated on that period as a period in which something great was possibly emerging. Movements of thought and action uh, from Ireland to Egypt, from the United States to Czechoslovakia, sought freedom, self-determination and justice, not only for themselves or their own communities, but for other peoples throughout the world. And people were writing in the journals and then the broad press as well of a global solidarity that was being evoked in different ways and in differing circumstances. But the stakes were highest in the global south, where many of the heroes of the struggle against colonialism had halted, being forced to halt, or had reversed the march towards a liberation that would be fully emancipatory. We need only think of the student and workers movement in Egypt, who resolutely demonstrated for days in February 1968, demanding the civil liberties and representative government so long promised, but so long delayed by President Nasser, whose own dreams in turn of a pan-African future were being thwarted by governments guaranteeing the interests of multinational extractive resources and energy industries. The war in Biafra, then, was one of the most destructive manifestations of the thwarting of the potential and ideals of the anti-colonial struggle. It was also a demonstration of a deadly cynicism on the part of those described, most often self-described, as the great powers. The relief airplanes which landed nightly at the strip in Uli, the parish of which Father Angus Finucane was a priest, evaded not only British-made anti-aircraft weaponry, but Soviet-made fighter jets, as Nigeria's former colonizer and the USSR vied for influence over the federal government in Lagos. A reminder, if any were needed, that peace is made more difficult, even at times near impossible when powerful interlocutors arm and support warring parties. 
seek as they do today surrogates for their arms industries. If the war in Biafra is an example of the delivery of a severe blow to the dream of a free and peaceful Africa, capable of overcoming all the problems that had bedeviled the European continent itself in the 20th century. It also inaugurated a new period in the history of humanitarian action and disaster relief. The tasks were urgent, and so the structural basis and their starting assumptions in scholarship and policy had tended to be left aside for another day. That, unfortunately, is a strategy, I say to this community, that we cannot afford to do again. It is a matter which gives further importance to conferences such as this. Now, as to humanitarian action itself, let us recall that up to that point, it had been Europeans living in a continent wrecked by internecine war who were the primary beneficiaries of humanitarian action. Let us recall Europe was sustained by the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration in the long and difficult years following the conclusion of the Second World War. The administration was, of course, the predecessor of UNICEF, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the World Health Organization, the UNHCR, reflecting the scale of humanitarian effort that was required in post-war Europe. All of these now in trouble in relation to not just the funding, but ideologically being made fragile. Humanitarian action has now come then to encompass a vast field of action, irrespective of geography, relief in wartime, the distribution of food and nutrition, the eradication of preventable disease. And since its foundational moments, concern has been at the very centre of the response to some of the most difficult humanitarian emergencies of the past 50 years. Bangladesh, Ethiopia and Cambodia in the 1970s, Ethiopia and Sudan in the 1980s, Somalia, Sudan and Rwanda in the 1990s, and in the present century, Sudan, Somalia, Syria, Haiti and South Asia. I thank Concern for all of this. And as I said, the words Bangladesh as well, and I will come to it in relation to the consequences of climate change, not in an academic manner, where the sea level has risen several feet, putting millions of tens of millions of people in danger. And despite these disparate geographies, cultures, and politics, the humanitarian disasters in those countries I've mentioned were and are multi-causal, multi-dimensional in their origins. And in so doing, concern has developed a unique and profound insight born of experience working with people caught up in natural disasters and protected violent conflicts across the world. As president, yes, indeed, I witnessed the work of concern in the Gambela region of Ethiopia, to which so many refugees from South Sudan have fled. There, I visited the camps of Gaul. I can recall the emergence of the analytical term in the literature, complex emergencies. It came in the early 1990s to capture the multi-causal and multi-dimensional nature of many of the humanitarian disasters. I recall reading Professor Mark Duffield's definition of the term, complex emergencies. So-called complex emergencies are essentially political in nature. They are protracted political crises resulting from sectarian, 
or predatory indigenous responses to socioeconomic stress and marginalization. And my only criticism of Duffield at the time was, you must always place it in context and recognize the legacy and the shadows that stood behind these indigenous failures. Concern and other organizations have been working in the complex emergencies he described for 50 years now, and perhaps knows better than many the diverse and manifold responses required to enable the needs of people to be adequately met. Providing medical assistance and training in response to the Boca cyclone of 1970, concerned staff and volunteers found themselves in the midst of the Bangladesh War of Independence, from which over 10 million people have fled. It was Concern who alerted the BBC to the effects of the terrible famine in Ethiopia in 1973, a famine which itself caused a political crisis and led to the emergence of the dark. And it was Concern who brought the return of famine in Ethiopia to the attention of the international media a decade later. But one can see as I speak how all of these factors interact and the necessity of having coordinated responses which can be fitted into effective diplomacy. And when I visited famine-stricken Somalia with Trokra in 1991, the camp in Mandera, in Mandera on the border of Kenya, to which Mary Robinson then visited and drew the world's attention, I was humbled to witness the work of concern in extraordinarily difficult and distressing circumstances in Mogadishu. In Baidoa, where I stayed and again then, 130 people a day were being buried. And all of this, the consequence of a terrible civil war and of a decade of wider armed conflict in the Horn of Africa. Arms not manufactured in Africa, arms imported into Africa, arms sold as instruments of debt into Africa by many European powers. And I remember, too, it wasn't only, if you like, that people were dying, but a culture was being obliterated as the bones of people were being pushed, poked into mounds of sand. And I witnessed the failure of diplomacy. For example, as I spoke to Dr. Sanum, for example, how in the Western system of inter inter interaction, the concept of the clan system couldn't be accommodated. And yet the elders of the clans were the people who could have stopped the flow of young people into market issue to the service of both warlords. And that told you something too, if you like, the inability to take justice systems, indigenous resolution systems, old cultural systems of dialogue that had been there long before the West had arrived on that continent. In responding to disasters for 50 years, Concern has witnessed a profound change too. And there are changes for the better, and we must welcome them. Alex Duval has pointed in the preface of his recent book, Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine. He begins with a passage. Something remarkable has happened over the past 30 years. The risk of dying of famine has become much, much smaller than at any time in history. Calamitous famines, episodes of mass starvation that kill a million or more have vanished. Great famines that kill 100,000 people still occur, but they are rarer and less lethal. But of course, as I will say, famine has also become an instrument 
of aggression in relation to conflicts. And that is a testament where progress has been made to the success of the United Nations agencies such as the World Food Programme and UNICEF. Now I repeat, not under severe threat, not only through underfunding, but through structural attacks on them. Working, those agencies were working in partnership with humanitarian agencies such as CONCERN. And then there is the work of scholars like Amartya Sen. He says he has been vital for understanding food security. So that famine now not is not understood simply as a shortage of food, but as a matter of uneven access to food. And we will come on later to the importance of nutrition. And the Food and Agricultural Organization recognizes four dimensions of food security. Food availability, access to food, food utilization, and stability over time. And these ideas form the basis for the development of sets of interventions in crisis situations that do work for the improved early warning systems for impending crises and an increased capacity at national level. There is much we can do if we have international commitment. And as Alex DeWall has written, the primary cause of famine is neither an insufficiency of food nor a misallocation of resources only, but too often a consequence of the destruction of the capacity to cultivate the soil and to import food and medicine. Some of the oldest methods of warfare history, the blockade, the siege, the scouring of the soil, that they are now being used again. They remain in use today, and they remain methods that are as indiscriminate in their effect as they are terrible in their consequences. Men, women, children. When in February 2017, the United Nations Secretary General issued an urgent call to action to prevent famine and remove the risks of famine, in four countries, all four, South Sudan, Nigeria, Somalia, and Yemen, were nations suffering armed conflict. And in such conflicts, such complex emergencies, political in nature, they ultimately require political solutions. Solutions that can provide the space in which all the social, cultural, and economic needs of a given society and the contradictions of their history can be addressed and met in what can be early forms of deliberative democracy. And in this, the role of women is crucial. 18 years ago, the Security Council adopted Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security. And since that time, subsequent resolutions have expanded upon 1325, recognizing the central role played by women in conflict resolution and peace building. The peace process on our own island could not have been achieved without the steady and courageous activism of women campaigning for a more just and peaceful society. The peace process on our own island, too, demonstrates that a diplomacy cognizant and respectful of divergent and shared aspirations and interests can succeed if underpinned by a shared committed commitment to peace and reconciliation. Many of the conditions identified as essential for peace building by the Secretary-General of the United Nations in his report on sustaining peace earlier this year were also present. We experienced that direct engagement by the two governments involved, sustaining financing for peace building activities, particularly from the European Union, and then of course international solidarity. So that Good Friday Agreement now in its 20th year 
never intended to provide a definitive and decisive resolution to the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. It has created the possibility for a shared space capable of accommodating the legitimate and differing versions of narrative, national aspirations of the people of Northern Ireland, a space in which it is possible to imagine a shared future filled with hope and opportunity. Creating such a space is fraught with difficulty, particularly when the members of the international community are not committed to a peaceful resolution. That was the case in Biafra, and it is the case with some of the worst conflicts in the world today. In 2016, 2.23% of global domestic product was devoted to military expenditure. It was the lowest since 2000. People were pleased, and it was far below the heights of the Cold War. Yet this has begun to rise again, as some of the permanent members of the Security Council embark on a new arms race, and the arms industry now exports weapons of death and destruction for use in Syria, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Yemen. And I want to emphasize this. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, the five permanent members of the Security Council, entrusted with the maintenance of international peace and security, today account for three quarters of the world's arms exports. And thus the self-defeating rhetoric of the arms race, the immorality of the arms trade, can only serve and serve as infrastructure to fuel current and future wars. And this is most evident today in Yemen. Secretary General of the United Nations has warned the world that 22 million Yemenis are now in desperate need of humanitarian aid and protection. Yet even as the United Nations seeks a, political, a peaceful political solution, the conflict in Yemen is actively sustained by the sale of arms and by the support of some members of the Security Council. It is a stark example of the triumph of the diplomacy of transaction and of narrow national interest over the diplomacy of the common good embodied by the Charter of the United Nations. The United Nations then must be supported by the peoples of the world. It needs global support. Imperfect it may be as all institutions are, but yet it is our best space for alternatives to war and ecological destruction. And the failure of those who profess to defend what they call a rules-based international order, to ignore those rules when it becomes inconvenient, only serves to undermine international peace and security and to threaten the lives of vulnerable people in conflicts all around the world. Now, through 50 years of advocacy and action, concern has stood for this different vision of the world which has always been possible one in which power yields to justice, one which recognises that we are all part of a common human family, owing to ourselves and to others not only the duties of compassion, but of solidarity. And the labours of concern are, of course, assisted by the gains that have been made. And concern and humanitarian groups were of powerful assistance in achieving an international expansion of vital instruments, the 1977 Protocols to the Geneva Convention, the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Ottawa Convention Prohibiting Landmines, the International Criminal Court, 
the Convention on Cluster Munitions, most recently the Arms Trade Treaty. These are victories for quiet, sustained, professional diplomacy and also in alliance with all of the NGOs who have been delivering practical work. And these legal instruments do matter, and they represent the moral achievements of humanity in our times, and they have tempered the acts of those who would do harm to a far greater extent than we know. And in May this year, the Security Council adopted a resolution condemning not only the starvation of civilians as a method of warfare, but also the unlawful denial of humanitarian access to civilian populations at risk. In doing so, the Security Council recognised that armed conflict is now one of the primary, if not the primary, cause of food insecurity and famine. That the Security Council took the decision, even amidst the current turmoil in international affairs, and turmoil is a polite word for it, is a testament to the campaigning work of both concerned nations and, and organisations such as CONTEL. This April I had the opportunity of addressing the United Nations General Assembly as part of the high-level meeting on peace-building and sustaining peace. The meeting reflected the intention of the United Nations, expressed in 2016 through resolutions of the General Assembly and the Security Council to address the root causes of conflict by promoting sustainable development, gender equality, food security, tackling climate change, and by meeting the needs of all people. As those assembled here know so well, this can only be accomplished if member states demonstrate the necessary political will. And the political will has to include the Security Council as well as the General Assembly. We have to win the nonsense of being normative in the General Assembly and pursuing interests in the Security Council. And this is a matter not only of ensuring that sufficient financial resources are available to humanitarian agencies, although that's critical. It will require a renewed dedication on the part of all nations to the principles upon which United Nations was founded, a reaffirmation of our collective faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of all people, and commitment to the peaceful deliberation as a means to resolve conflict. And those principles have been given, as I have said, practical expression in the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Climate Accord in this century. It is our fidelity to the objectives that we gave ourselves in 2015 in those agreements that our success or failure shall be judged as, as whether we were authentic or merely rhetorical. And in speaking of the goals, I do want, before I finish, to take this moment to express my gratitude on behalf of the Irish people to Deputy Secretary-General Amina Mohammed for the vital role she has played in, in, in really in bringing the 2030 Agenda to fruition and for the leadership that she's providing again and again to the United Nations in the present moment. All of us here know the second Sustainable Development Goal is nothing less than an end to hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition and promoting sustainable agriculture. And it's over 50 years Concern was a leader, not just in responding to emergencies, but also in tackling hunger and improving nutrition. And in 2007, the United Nations adopted a new approach by tackling severe acute malnutrition called Community Management of, Community of Acute Malnutrition. That report had been pioneered and tested on the ground by CONCERN, 
working collaboratively with Dr. Steve Collins of Valid International and financed by Irish Aid. The approach of providing nutrition support, mainly through the local community, was shown to reduce mortality and food crisis, as well as increasing the coverage of those affected by acute malnutrition. Community management of acute malnutrition is now integrated into the health services of some 75 countries as their central strategy to deal with acute malnutrition. Chronic malnutrition is, of course, the much larger problem in terms of numbers, and it accounts for over 90% of those who go to bed hungry every night. In its most recent report on the state of nutrition in the world, the Food and Agriculture Organization estimated that the number of chronically undernourished people in the world has increased from 815 million in 2015 to 900 million in 2016. And two key factors underpin this increase, a rise in the number of armed conflicts and the increased impact of climate change. So we have seen progress in tackling chronic malnutrition. The number of children classified as stunted has been falling, but at 155 million, it is still far too high. And the scaling up nutrition movement, in which both the Irish government and Concern have played a leading role, is at the heart of the efforts to make more progress in reducing chronic malnutrition and stunting. Looking to the future, the United Nations estimates that our planet will be a home to 8.6 billion people in 2030, 9.8 billion people in 2050. This is a reflection of rising life expectancy in many countries around the world. But it does present the global food system with an extraordinary challenge if we are to achieve the goals to which we are committed. A growing and increasingly urbanised population will require a greater quantity of food. And if there is an international policy failure, it isn't the failure to understand the dynamics of urbanization and produce a proper suite of, of policy measures to deal with it. A growing number will require a greater quantity of food and will require a different mix of food as populations experience the nutrition transition, reducing consumption of tubers and roots, increasing consumption they will demand, no doubt, meat, dairy and eggs. Is this sustainable? There is a growing awareness that the challenges of producing sufficient food for a growing population while meeting the commitments of the Paris Climate Agreement will require a radically different approach in our overall food systems. There is compelling evidence that food systems are at the nexus that links food, secu food security, nutrition and human health. The viability of ecosystems, climate change, social justice. In a recent work, Noel Russell of the University of Manchester has suggested that increased food production for our growing world population will require sustainable, productive increases in food production, even as some land has already been lost to environmental degradation and climate change, and will crucially depend upon advances in science and technology and the widespread availability of the fruits of new research. And a recent report by a group of international experts proposes that agriculture and food systems should be aligned to the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. They recognise that this will require a comprehensive transformation of our current global food system. 
They suggest that this transformation will require four changes. First, food systems should enable all people to benefit from nutritious and healthy food. Second, they should reflect sustainable agriculture and food value chains. Third, they should mitigate climate change and build resilience. Fourth, they should encourage a renaissance of rural territories. I pause to say, can you imagine creating a huge political campaign for support of any one, not to speak of all of these? It will require a change in consciousness, may I modestly suggest. Can what I have, as I say in conclusion, can what I have be des described be achieved with the present distribution of wealth, income and opportunity, both within and between countries? Can it be accomplished within the confines of the current model of the global food system, in which prices are often determined and food distributed through international financial markets? The huge proportion of commodities forwards compared to before are our policies towards global trade in food products sufficient to meet the demands of the future? Will research and development be publicly funded and made available to farmers in the global south? Or will it be increasingly privatised and controlled by multinational corporations? And then to the Sustainable Development Goals, the World Humanitarian Summit repeated pleas from the Secretary General of the United Nations. He put it, we need a surgeon diplomacy to bring all of what has been agreed into the realm of practice. Is there evidence for such a surge of diplomacy? How long have we waited for it? What must we do? The manner in which we answer these questions, I suggest, will determine the fate of the people throughout the world. If we fail to ensure nutritious and affordable food for all, competition for resources such as water and fertile land may drive new conflicts in areas of the, of the world made vulnerable to environmental degradation. To do so, I believe that the globalisation of trade and finance, the very processes that gave rise to the global food system we have today, must yield to a globalisation of people's needs, one capable of giving rise to new what we might call a civilization of sufficiency. And such a moment was attempted before, in April 1974, when the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Declaration for the Establishment of a New International Economic Order. And I recall the great moments of joy there were that we were on a new path. It was ambitious and demanded inter alia the right of developing countries to regulate and control the activities of multinational corporations within their territory. The freedom to nationalise foreign property, if necessary, freedom to establish associations of primary commodity producers, the provision of economic and technical assistance, the transfer of technology without borders. To our contemporary ears, this no doubt sounds utopian. Such has been the foreclosing of possibilities over the past 40 years. Yet far from being merely a road not taken, a set of arrows fired at futurity, I suggest that those moments can provide a basis to inspire possible alternatives today. Marfuckle Square, dear friends, earlier this year I had the pleasure of inviting many of the staff and volunteers involved with concern to Oris and Uchtron to mark their contribution to concern through the years to celebrate the 50th anniversary. It was an opportunity to thank all the staff and volunteers of CONCERN 
and all their friends of conscience for the courage, the compassion and the bravery they've demonstrated in showing solidarity with some of the poorest people not on our planet and also of describing a future for us. And though concern has adjusted and grown over five decades to take account of a changing world in terms of new political circumstances and working methods, concern, I say to you, you have remained true to the values of your founders in confronting extreme poverty, in serving Kosmuintrundan, the poorest of the poor, as President of Ireland on behalf of the Irish people, may I once again say thank you to Concern, to its staff and supporters, for all you have contributed, and invite the public to support them in this important work of transformation. Mila Buikis, thank you.